Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right. Good evening, everybody. Once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico. We've got a great show for you this evening. Uh, going to be joined here in just a moment by a couple of great professionals uh, joining me on the Coach's Corner panel for an interesting discussion this evening. And then a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined by my very special guest. Uh, he's going to be coming back. He was here last year, uh, Dick Zokel, uh, founder and developer of MindTrack and also a PGA uh, touring professional. He's retired now, but uh, Played uh, over 21 years uh, professionally on the tours, and uh, he's going to be joining me to talk a little bit about. Uh, we're going to get an update on MindTrack Golf, uh, an app that was developed uh, by Richard and his team, and then uh, we're also going to talk about as two fellow Canadians. We're going to talk a little bit about the Canadian Open, which of course was cancelled again this year. It was supposed to be in early June. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that, a little bit about the history of it, uh, his experience at the Open and uh, how things are uh, moving forward and progressing uh, with that particular event. We'll see what's going to happen in years to come. But anyways, uh, glad that you guys could join me, and uh, I'm going to introduce the guys here, uh, and uh, we'll get into tonight's discussion. First up, of course, is uh, Pete Buchanan. He is the founder and director of instruction and owner of Plain Simple Golf LLC, which, of course, houses the Plain Simple Golf Circuit and the Simple uh, Swing Repeater Training Brace. Uh, he's also been uh, helping golfers uh, focus on building a repeatable swing uh, for over 30 years now. He's been uh, a, a good member and standing, if you will, in the golf profession. Also, uh, John Hughes, a PGA Master Professional and uh, Honorary President of the North Florida's PGA Section. Uh, he's also a recipient of the 2013 PGA of America's Horton Smith Award. And he is one of the senior editors and a Golf Tips Magazine Top 25 Instructor for Golf Tips Magazine and part of the Golf Tips Advisory staff. So, guys, welcome once again to Coach's Corner. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Ted. All right, just to quickly finish uh, what we were talking about, I was uh, sort of going down memory lane, if you will, um, about how long it's been that you guys have been on the show as uh, regular contributors to the Coach's Corner. And I think uh, Coach... uh, Golf Talk Live, of course, we're in the ninth season now, but Coach's Corner didn't start the beginning. It was a year later, so that would go about eight seasons. You guys are on every, uh, pretty much every second Tuesday of the month. So quick math, uh, guys, uh, how many times do you think you've been on, not including guest appearances? I would say enough for Pete to keep me out of trouble. <laughs> right. <laughs> there we go. Well, I... <laughs> it's a lot. I'm doing a, yeah, I'm doing a simple math. So 
at least 10 times a year times eight. So we're looking at at least 80, 80 plus times that you guys have been on here on the Coach's Corner panel over the years, uh, give or take uh, a few here and there. So that's been a long time that you guys have been uh, joining on the show, and I appreciate uh, all of your uh, input, of course. All right, we're going to talk about, guys, and Pete, I'm going to start with you if you don't mind. Uh, we're going to talk about some tips to help junior golfers uh, to make it a little bit more fun and exciting for the for the youngsters. And uh, I think one of the first things is, uh, Pete, is obviously we want to connect them. Uh, first off, we want to find out what, what their level of interest is. Um, and again, you know, it, obviously the younger they are, uh, we're going to do things that are a little more age appropriate. But uh, certainly at some point if they've expressed an interest, we want to get them off to a good start. So I think it's a, a good idea to maybe uh, hook them up with a, a golf professional um, uh, in their particular area, of course. And I think it's important to do that. Maybe you can touch on a few reasons why it's good to get them involved with uh, a professional of, of some sort, uh, whether it be an LPGA or PGA or other, um, early on. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about why that's important, I think, to, to get them started off right. Well, first of all, again, thanks, Ted, for having me on. John, looking forward to it. You know, as the juniors progress, you know, I, I get a lot of questions, um, you know, when I'm out of the range and, and they'll have some kids that are, you know, three, four, five years old, and they're asking me, you know, when should we start them on lessons? You know, and my first mm-hmm. response is, well, let's make sure they're interested in it first. Just let them have some fun. Mm-hmm. Give them, make sure that they, you get some equipment that fits, which, you know, nowadays – is, you know, there's all kinds of junior sets out there that they can get clubs that fit them. You know, we didn't have that back when I started. You know, you got, they were either too long or you cut them down and they were too stiff or, or however you, you got your club set up. But, you know, get them something that fits. And, you know, at the beginning for the younger ones, let them have some fun. And, and as you said, when they start to show interest, yeah, definitely then, you know, get them some help so they can build a solid foundation. And that's really what it's all about. You know, learning how to, how to grip it, how to aim, how to stand. You know, the, the basic motions and movements that are involved in, you know, you know, learning how to, how to get those fundamentals down early on. And, you know, that will then spur them to, you know, becoming even better than they are now and, and uh, continue their interest along with, with you know, moving them in, in a direction of continuing to play, whether they decide to keep it on a casual basis or, you know, they want to play junior golf, high school golf, um, college golf. So there's you know, definitely have to start them off with a, a solid foundation. Getting a professional teacher in there to help them with that is is something that's that's pretty critical at the beginning. So I always encourage them, you know, once they show an interest, you know, get them started. And, you know, for me on a personal level, you know, I try to keep it pretty simple when they start off. You don't want to get too complicated as you start introducing, but you do want to get the basic fundamentals down. That's the that's the solid piece that they need to have and that structure that's going to be there and getting them to understand, you know, all the points of it. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time at the beginning, you know, just on the full swing. I'm, I get them over to putting and chipping and pitching. I want them to understand that there's shots that are necessary to score. And, you know, there's, there's different parts to the game and they need to understand all of it. And, you know, and have some mm-hmm. fun along the way. I, I try to set up some games for them when we're practicing and, you know, not just, you know, putting from one spot to the other or, you know, have a little contest with them or put some obstacles in their way and get them to think a little bit. Um, but, you know, just, just to try to make it more fun as they're going along. But I think definitely, you know, once they begin to show an interest, um, getting them some professional teaching help is, is vital for them to, 
you know, get the fundamentals down and, and their progression as they become, you know, more experienced golfers and, you know, help to lead them in a direction that uh, that they want to go. And there are some that go the other way. They show some interest and then they go along and then they get to 14, 15 and other sports come in and they're gone. But you know what? That's okay. Yeah. That happens too. So, but I think uh, once they begin to, to to show that they want to play, yeah, getting them some, some professional help, professional teacher, professional golfers, PGA, LPGA, whoever's there available uh, is definitely uh, a sound uh, thing for them to do to get started. Yeah, and uh, great points. And, and I think you're exactly right. I think it's, uh, again, you, you have to look at the age, number one. And there's sort of a, a natural progression. You Firstly, you want to find out if there's any interest whatsoever uh, or attraction to the game. And maybe their parents play golf, uh, John, or, or something there that they've, they've been exposed to it somehow. Um, and now they've maybe expressed an interest um, in, in wanting to have a little bit better understanding of the game. And I think it's important to have that early introduction with uh, a golf professional. Um, one thing I do want to ask you, John, is I'm going to ask you a different question because I think Pete pretty much covered that. Um, but I think typically, and, and you may or may not uh, agree with this, I think early on when you do get them into uh, starting to take some instruction, is it better to start them off in more of a group environment, like group instruction? Does that work best initially? Uh, and then as they progress and they take a more definitive interest, then sort of wean them off into more specialized one-on-one instruction. What are your thoughts here as far as when's it appropriate for group instruction and when's it appropriate for a one-on-one format? Uh, Great question, Pete. Great answer to the last question. Appreciate, Ted, you having us both on the program. Looking forward to a lot of fun with Pete, as always. Uh, Group or individual has a lot to do with the individual. Um, There are kids that don't function very well in a group. They need individual. There are kids that thrive in the group, and that's where they start. It's it's a lot of gushing back and forth with parents to figure out which is the best environment for that youngster to start the game. I think the majority of them do have more fun in a group, especially when the group is centered around what's called gamification, making the instruction more game-like. It's more engaging. Mm -hmm. It's more interactive. And it's a lot more fun, and it's a lot of a lot less about the academia and the uh, mechanics and the preciseness. It's more about, hey, can you do this? Can, can, you think you can do this? Show me you can do this. And giving the child a challenge, and then if they fail or succeed, either way, you've got them in your pocket from an instruction standpoint of view. If they succeed, you you know you can reinforce the skill. If they're failing, you know that there's an, a teachable opportunity, but how deep of the teaching you want to get into with the group, that's all up to the individuals of the group. At the end of the day, I think we all, even as adults, like learning things new in a group. Mm-hmm. It helps our transformational learning process. We share it. We bond with that. We can share similar stories as well as we're able to sort of struggle along, uh, really take a nice bath of clean water when someone succeeds, we all feel part of it. And when someone's in the dirty water, we help them out of it. Uh, it's, it's a very simple concept. The group 
situation, but again, addressing the individual. Maybe the child's autistic. Maybe the child mm-hmm. has a learning disability. Maybe the child's got such a schedule they can't fit into a group. Uh, that's a little bit different case scenario. That's a totally different subject topic all in itself. But when that youngster needs to have the individual instruction, I think the same philosophy, parents, you should take with that. Find an instructor who's going to make the instruction fun. It's not about the X's and O's. It's about creating a self-challenging situation where the child can show themselves what they're capable of doing, can ask questions in an environment they feel comfortable in, feel secure in. Uh, Some kids feel that way with individual, but when you can share that comfortability amongst other people, especially at a young age, uh, you seem to keep people involved, and and that's really the bottom line. Let's not get any young man or woman of any age, it doesn't matter, in a situation where they no longer want to participate. Uh, That's a lot to do with the parent-child communicating and then communicating with the instructor as to which setting is best for them. Right. Great points, John. Thank you. Um, Pete, I think the other thing, too, that we need to be mindful of is, especially with younger kids, um, you know, as they progress and get into their uh, teens and particularly their late teens, uh, you know, I think this can apply for everybody, but um, for younger kids in particular, uh, they need variety. Um, certainly you're never too young to learn, but uh, some of our smallest swingers need a mixture of activities to keep clinics and lessons fresh and exciting. Um, you know, really any activity that emphasizes hand-eye coordination, balance, or athletic movement uh, certainly uh, is good for golfers' early development, but may not necessarily uh, be something that you want to start a youngster off with. But that variety is important, right, P? No question. I think more than anything else, you're trying to make it, um, as John said, as enjoyable, make it fun. But you're also trying to give them, within the same skill, a different variety of things they can do to develop that skill. Um, you know, we try to take, um, especially the short game, and, and give them, you know, different scenarios or give them different, uh, different things to do where we'll put, um, you know, an obstacle up uh, sort of like a, a high jump bar and, and, and that we can adjust and say, I want you to hit it under it, I want you to hit it over it, you know, and without really giving them the, the technique or, or, the, or the mechanics of it, just say, hey, can you do it? Just like John said, hit it underneath this, hit it over it. You know, what club would you need to do this? And start a, sort of start to get their imagination working a little bit while having some fun and hitting some different types of shots uh, while they're doing it. Or, you know, just looking at the range and there's a 50-yard sign. How many of you can hit it? What would you think? See if you can hit that sign. You know, what club would you need to use to, to do it? You know, what type of shot would you need to hit to, to hit it? The, the sign's only about four feet off the ground, so what are you going to have to do? Do you want to come in from high? Do you want to go low? And so I think in all the different areas, you know, you have your basic putting, chipping, pitching, you know, but I think in, in all of those different setups, the, the more ways you can work around the skill set and give them different options to develop that skill, I think the more interest they're going to stay in it, the more fun they're going to have, and I think that's going to continue them to continue on and, and create golfers out of them for the rest of their lives. So, yeah, I, there's, there's no question. You have to have a variety of things for them to do 
Um, I know for the little ones, we have some programs that we do, and, and, and many times they're not even – they don't even have a club or a golf ball around them. We're doing all kinds of fun activities that, you know, have some motions that are similar to what golf is going to do, but we're doing something else. Um, just to just mm-hmm. to have something different, have something fun, and, and something they're more familiar with. All the young ones, you know, what other sports do you play? And then try to incorporate some of those pieces of the other sports they play into what we're trying to do with our stuff. Just to give them some familiarity with, you know, other things that they're used to doing. And, uh, you know, using those skills to help their golf skills. So you know, definitely, definitely want a variety of things that they're trying to do. Well, I think that all well said. I think that uh, old saying "variety is the spice of life" I think is never more true than in a situation like this. Uh, thank you again, Pete, for uh, some great points raised. Um, John, I, I think you know another uh, old saying is uh, "Don't sweat the details." Um, obviously, as Pete pointed out uh, earlier, you know solid fundamentals are important. Um, but it's fine, I think, for a beginner to have a few flaws in their grip or stance as long as they are hitting the ball and having fun and obviously wanting to return to the course. Um, but there's also a time, too, I think, um, would you agree, that we want to kind of turn the pupil into a teacher and having them ask questions about why maybe a change might be necessary in their swing. What do you think about that? Well, one of the coaching styles I adapted early on was trying to have my clients become their own best coach by asking them insightful, introspective questions. And mm-hmm. there was something mentioned earlier, Pete, sort of when you we were talking about when should a child take lessons, one of the answers I provide parents is when they're asking questions that you can't answer. Uh, and and that's the beginning of that process. When when any child's asking questions about something they're passionate about, and a parent's not able to provide those answers, it's time to get instruction. It's time to provide lessons and tutoring and mentoring to that youngster to, to fuel the passion. From the standpoint of view of providing instruction versus versus having the client, regardless of the age, provide their own instruction. Really good coaches are going to always ask provocative questions. What did you feel? What do you think of what you did there? Can you tell me where the face of the golf club was at impact? Uh, Three very simple questions that make any youngster be self-reflective. What did I do there? What did I feel there? And if I did this and did that, where was the faith? Uh, anytime you can get a child thinking that way cognitively, you've got them in the right space. You've got them in the right frame of mind for retained learning. Um, and that's always something that I know I'm seeking out. Pete and I have had this discussion in the past off off the program, and I know he does the same thing. It's We can't be there all the time. And for right. someone to play golf and continually turn around and ask somebody, well, what do I do next? What do I do next? How do I do this? How do I do that? That's not a great lesson you're taking if that's what you're coming out with. What you should be coming out with is some confidence and understanding and knowing what to do next. But where this comes from is learning from the mistakes, asking questions retrospectively and introspectively of, hey, what, what did I just do? 
and how can I correct this the next time I attempt it? And that's really what I think a great coach is after and what a parent should be after when it comes to the child developing and continuing to have the passion for their golf skills. Yep, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and Pete, I think, you know, something else that we, we have to be mindful of as, as uh, uh, professionals uh, in, in golf, uh, and that is we certainly want our students, uh, especially our young students, to um, spend some quality time practicing, whether it be chipping or bunker play uh, and, and, you know, working out on the range, if you will, some of the, the areas that they need the, the, uh, the most work on. Um, but it's also equally important to make uh, to get them out in the golf course and certainly as soon as possible, um, rather than spending all of their time just banging balls at the range. We want them on the range, of course, doing certain things, but we want to get them on the golf course uh, as quickly as possible. Maybe you can uh, explain a little bit more why we want to do that. Well, there's definitely, you know, in anything that you do, the more you practice, the better you're going to get at it. So you're going to have to spend some practice time. I have a, a spreadsheet that I developed, which gives, you know, the kids certain tasks for each one of the areas from you know, the full swing on into the short game, um, the days of the week that they perform those tasks and the amount of time they spend doing them. And that way they have a schedule uh, of practice. So then I know they're out there doing it. Um, and, and these are the ones that are a little bit more advanced. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, again, you're, you're going to want the, the youngsters, to, you're going to want them to understand that practice is part of the process. And so you're going to have to get out there and, and hit some balls. And, um, you know, I always like to tell them, too, I said, if you want to get the most value out of the, uh, out of the bucket of balls you bought, then uh, go over where the short game area is. You can pick those up all day long. Uh, you can hit those for a long time you know, versus the ones you hit out on the range. And then when they're gone, you got to go get some more. So if you really want to look at some, some very valuable practice time, you know, use that to your advantage. Take those balls over there and hit them up on the green. Go, you know, go fetch them, bring them back, and do some more. But there's definitely um, a piece of where you have to practice on the range to develop those skills that you're going to need when you go play. But also wanted to get them to understand, you know, when you have an opportunity to play, you know, make sure you get out there and do that. Get on the golf course and play um, and start to learn on the golf course, you know, what you're good at, what you're not so good at, where you, you know, excel in areas of the game and where you don't. And then let's use that to our advantage. So when we go back to the practice time, let's take those areas that you're not very good at and let's incorporate them into that practice schedule that we have so we can advance those skills uh, and while still maintaining the other ones, but then start to get you better at the things that, uh, you know, that give you a little bit of difficulty so that way we can have a well-rounded game all the way around. I mean, there's always going to be a problem mm-hmm. a point in everybody's game where they're better at a, a certain thing. Uh, they're, they're a really good putter, not as good a chipper. Um, you know, you're going to have areas that, that you fall down a little bit on, but those are the ones then that you have to be you know, conscious of that you need to practice. So I think if we can instill them yeah. getting to the range and, and putting those skills to test and practicing those and, and uh, you know, again, uh, in some of the things that I have them do, it's not only just practicing chipping, but we have certain things that we're going to do in that that uh, create some imagination and, and have them hit little different shots. I mean, sometimes I'll put them, you know, five feet off the green, and I said, okay, today you have to do all those with the, with your, the iron you have. And they'll all look at me like, mm-hmm. what? 
Well, I'm only five feet off the green. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> and that pin's only five feet on the green. So now how are you going to do this? you got to figure it out. Yep. So it creates some, you know, different imagination, different things that they can do. You know, and as you said, working on touch and feel, uh, which is going to be, you know, it, it, I think the hardest part about golf overall is all of the scoring shots, you know, are touch and feel. you got to have some feel, and those require more practice. So I try to yep. instill in them I- early on that they got to get out there and practice those. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a balancing uh, sorry a balancing act uh, for golfers of any age really. I mean, you you have to. Uh, there's definitely some range time uh, and that includes obviously the practice greens uh, as well. But um, you know you you have to find balance in what you do. But ultimately, you're there to play the game. And if you're not getting out in the golf course, if all you're doing is spending the majority of your time on the driving range uh, or you know in the practice area. Um, and you're not actually getting out and playing, you're not practicing some of those things, uh, some of, using some of that imagination that you're talking about um, and, and putting together a good round. And you're just hitting balls. And if you want to be a range rat, as they say, um, then that's fine. If that's, if that's what you enjoy doing and you're not really you know, a, a big uh, player, if you will, not really all that keen about it, um, that, then that's fine too. And, and, John, that brings me to this next point, which is our, our sixth point here, and that is really it's up to the child to decide. After all, it's their journey. Uh, and maybe not all junior golfers, as I was starting to allude to, maybe want to play in tournaments. Some maybe just like getting out there and you know, hitting some, uh, sharing a few good shots and, and having a few laughs with their friends. Um, that's okay, isn't it? Absolutely. In one word, absolutely. It is all about fun. I can't say how many. I've probably said it 80 times if I've been on this show 80 times. It is about fun. Um, the, right. the issue that you bring up as far as it's the child's choice, I think gets clouded quite often by mm-hmm. parents who see talent. Uh, they see raw ability. They see athleticism. And really, in the best of hearts and mind, want the child to experience success, whether they've experienced it or not. I don't, I don't believe too heavily in living vicariously through. I think at some point the, the parent gets real about that. Uh, but I think all parents want their child to have an opportunity to succeed. What a parent fails to see is the loss of passion for whatever that loss mm-hmm. of passion is. So it does become the child's uh, decision. And, and what we have to keep in mind, it's not a legal decision. It's not like you can go to the court at 12 years old and choose what parent you're going to live with uh, in some states. Mm-hmm. It's more or less, hey, this is what I want to do, and here's why I want to do it. And I think if the parents are listening to the why, then they'll understand how their child lost the passion. Maybe they're wanting to do something else because why? Uh, And and I kept that in mind. I've got a 19-year-old, and he's the best example I can give within this question. He was brought up in a golfing family. He was surrounded by Mm -hmm. great golfers, uh, celebrity golfers, for most of his life. And at 12 years old, he decided – I don't want to play competitive golf. And to his astonishment, I looked him square in the eye. I said, okay, no problem. 
realize I didn't ask you to do this. You asked to do it, and now you're asking not to do it, and that's okay. What I didn't want him to do is completely burn out and dismiss stuff. And what's neat about it, parents, is to this day at 19 years old, I just spent part of a weekend with them, and part of that weekend was playing nine holes. Not because I asked mm-hmm. him, but because he asked me. Uh, when you create a healthy environment around your child that allows them to pick and choose what they're wanting to do because of their passion, and that's the main reason mm-hmm. why, if they lose some of the passion competitively, that's okay. Just at least keep them involved in something they're passionate about, particularly golf because it's something they can go back to time after time after time, as well as have something in common with a lot of other folks on the planet that may not have had that opportunity. It fosters a lot of goodwill and networking, but at the same time, that introspection I was talking about before is what my son says why he wants to go play golf with me, because not Mm -hmm. only do we get the chance to share time with one another, he gets to start thinking about himself a little bit deeper in different ways that actually helps him out with the daily things that he experiences. And I can't say enough about that. Yep. You know, it's interesting that you say that. Um, It's such a true statement, really, um, for parents not to rush. uh, You know, obviously, if the child comes to you and expresses an interest in, uh, in the game for whatever reason, um, you know, then obviously explore that together. Um, but just because you as a parent uh, maybe grew up playing golf, uh, there's nothing wrong with, you know, introducing uh, your son or daughter to the game. Um, but if they, you know, if they at some point express an interest very early on, well, this is maybe not for me, then you have to be willing to let that go. And maybe it, it may resurface at a later point. Uh, but just because you want to make it into a family thing, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be um, because, you know, I I use myself as an example. My sister and I growing up, um, you know, my father obviously was very passionate about golf at a very, uh, you know, early age himself. And when I was a youngster, he got me into the game. My sister, you know, not so much. She didn't really have the same interest very early on. Uh, However, she did take it up later in life. She developed a passion for it then. Um, But, you know, so there were two different children. We each had a different way of looking at it. Um, you know, maybe mine was partially because I was a boy and, you know, a son and and father sort of deal. Maybe that was part of it. Um, but you know, he never pushed either one of us into the game. It was based on what we wanted to do. And I think that's very, very important. And and both of you have really kind of raised that, um, Pete slumps are, are part of the sports, uh, in general, and particularly uh, in golf, we've seen a few over the years, um, I don't think that's really anything to be concerned of. If you've got a junior golfer that's maybe playing in, in some ke- uh, competitive uh, tournaments and so forth, obviously for the younger uh, younger kids, I mean, they're not really competitive, so it's not going to really be effective. But if they start to get into uh, junior tournaments or collegiate uh, sports, uh, they're going to experience some slumps. Um, what can we do, um, number one, as teachers to help them uh, navigate that process and understand that, and and is there something uh, a role that the parents can play as well to be encouraging? Well, yeah, we we're all every sport's going to have slumps in it. Um, you you can see it uh, all the time from you know different uh, even the the professional sports 
uh, football, baseball, basketball. There's all, there's always going to be a time when things aren't going as well as they should go. And I think more than anything else, it's it's letting them know that those situations, you know, may come up. And when they do come up, you know, don't lose focus on what we're trying to do. We've just got to learn from this this particular spot, understand what's going on, and let's try to let's try to combat what's what's happening there and learn from you know why things aren't going as well as they are, and you know the things that we can do to uh, to make them better. So, you know, there's there's, you know, it's not always going to be, you know, rose and gold going on when you're when you're playing golf. I mean, there's just so many different things that can happen, so many different golf courses, and I I know, you know, I tried to explain to this to to one of the juniors. He's got a he's got a pretty good game. He's got a shot shape that he likes to play, and and there's one particular golf course where all the holes go the other way, and he doesn't play well there. I said, you know what, that's going to happen. So we got to figure out a game plan to combat that, you know. It's, he feels like it's, you know, sort of slumpish. But I said, no, it's not. It's just you're playing a golf course that doesn't fit your game. If that happens. I said, I know PGA Tour players, friends of mine, that uh, there are certain golf courses they don't play. They don't fit their game. Mm-hmm. So they don't play them. Put them in their schedule. That's fine. You know, so there's going to be times when, when things aren't going to go as, you know, according to plan or going as well as you, you think they will. So, you know, we don't need to lose – lose any, any you know any sleep over it we just gotta you know be aware that there's gonna be times when things aren't going along as 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 well as they should and you know you just have to you know play through those um things are going to turn around they will get better you know uh, it's going to happen you know you will get through it and uh, we'll come out on the other side learning from what happened and uh, you know maybe this, those slumps will be a little bit uh, smaller the next time but yeah it's every sport has it um you know, it's just the way it is. I mean, you know, there's no reason to, to, to really look around the, the other side. We just have to learn from it, uh, understand that they're there, and then, you know, continue on down the road. And, and you know, hopefully they get smaller as they go. But, you know what, um, mm. you know, it's there's there's so many elements that come into it, you know, even from a – especially in today's day and age. I mean, you know, I was just talking about one of the players that uh, I'm helping coach with at the University of Missouri who's – the last four or five holes, you know, just wasn't playing very well. And I said, well, how's your nutrition? Bingo. There it is. Mm-hmm. You know, running out of juice in the last four or five holes and they running out of energy. So I said, well, we need to change that. You know, so it could be something like that too. So there's so many elements that are involved today, you know, so a conversation is good to have to find out what's going on overall and, you know, use everything we can to, to help them through it, to soften it a little bit as we can and, you know, move forward from there. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and, you know, I think one of the other things that we have to, you know, keep mindful of is even a negative experience can be turned into a positive. Um, you know, we're, as you pointed out, Pete, you know, we're all going to experience slumps or, uh, you know, moments where, where things are not going to go our way. Um, but that's always an opportunity, I believe, to learn um, and it's also a great way to develop um, your mental strength because if you can ride it through and if you can develop um, your mental game a little bit more uh, through those slumps or, or difficult stretches of, of time, um, you're going to become a better player. I mean, even the best players in the world, you know, Tiger, Jack, um, you know, many of the other great players that have come along. Uh, over the years, have all experienced those moments, but it was the ones that were um, 
more mentally tough, if you will, for lack of better words, that were able to ride it out. There were others that, that didn't have that same toughness out in the golf course and ultimately ended up uh, you know, either giving up or just not uh, you know, continuing on very well uh, for the following years because they just weren't able to uh, get over it and started making a lot of swing changes, a lot of uh, very aggressive changes in their game in order to overcome it as opposed to just sort of letting it happen. Um, John, I want to switch gears just a little bit. I certainly want to continue to talk about junior golf, but I want to get into a little bit more advanced junior golf uh, as we uh, continue on in this discussion. And, you know, now we're, we're getting up into uh, maybe high school or even uh, as far up as collegiate golfers. Um, our focus as instructors is going to change earlier on we're obviously as, as pete pointed out at the very beginning you know we're dealing more with fundamentals and really understanding uh the basics of the game but when they start getting into a team format or into a higher level um now it, it's not an instructor's hat anymore it's more of a coaching hat what do we need to do with junior golfers at this point when we make that switch from uh teaching pro to maybe a coach how does our role change and how we deal with that particular individual. Well, I've I've been at that particular part of the industry for quite a while, and and the biggest role change that I have had to experience for myself is being more than just an instructor. I've, I've talked about this in the past that the vast majority of people out there are teachers, then you become an instructor, and the very top of the pyramid, less than 2%, 3%, by some estimates, is that coach. And, and the way I describe it is remember your favorite teacher in school, that person, when you saw them at the mall, they said hello and engaged your parents. Or when you saw them somewhere else, just out in the middle of nowhere, they actually asked you about you and not about your schooling. Well, that's what a golf coach emphatically does for their clients. Uh, there's, I, I constantly, as we've been on the show today, I've actually received two texts from junior competitive clients. Let me know how they're doing or they're stuck with something, and I'll answer those texts when we're done. But it's, what, 7.38 in the evening on the East Coast. My job's never done. So one of the mm -hmm. things you look for in a coach is do they look at it as a job? Teachers and instructors do. Coaches don't look at it as a job. They look at it as a lifestyle, as a way of life, but they're an integral part of the child's development to become that much more competitive. I think that's the biggest thing that I can tell parents about from a junior golfer standpoint of view. Don't be surprised if your coach Again, to reiterate what I said before, as you start becoming your own coach in competitive situations, it's all about the weakest chain, uh, chain piece of chain metal in your armor. Uh, what is the weakest part? And we're going to work hard on that because that's where you'll expose yourself. Unlike other sports where your combatant, your your the team you're playing against can expose your weaknesses. You expose your own weaknesses, and what a really good competitive junior golf coach does is puts a plan together that we don't. I don't talk about it as weaknesses. I talk about it as opportunities. 
here's an opportunity based on your stats. Here's an opportunity based on how you played your last round of competitive golf that you can improve upon because that's where you're going to get hit the most in the face by yourself. And those are, that's when you are going to turn around and go, Coach, what should I do? Uh, you can't do that. You, you've got to be able to make a split decision, a correct decision, right there and then. And, and it's just part of the maturation process. You have to realize that as a junior golfer, you have not lived through the experiences that you and I and Pete and countless other coaches have lived through. Uh, what we're there mm-hmm. to do is help you and guide you based on our mistakes. And we genuinely don't want to see you make the same mistakes. But in some cases, we have to allow you to do that. It's okay to make mistakes. The best players in the world do it countless times throughout a round. What they're able to do is make great decisions after that mistake and realize that it's not about being perfect. And I think that leads me to the final point of this question. A lot of times, from a coach's standpoint of view, I see parents and junior golfers, and in some cases coaches, striving for this mystical place of perfection. I think the work ethic you put into it, the processes, the procedures you put in leading you to that, and Pete sort of hit on this, I'm just saying it a little bit differently, that's perfection in itself. And what your coach Mm -hmm. should be doing with you is helping you understand that if you do all these things correctly, you will trend in the correct direction. We're not looking for you to spike immediately just simply because a college coach you want to prove something to. A college coach wants to see progression, steady progression, that you haven't reached your peak, that you've got some work ethic to. You've got a plan that's based on solid fundamental facts. And that plan is is holistic. So when you're in the worst of situations, the worst part of your armor doesn't get exposed. And, and, And that's really... What I've seen me as a coach transform into, this dates back to my IJGA days, uh, 21, 22-plus years ago. Uh, That was the biggest metamorphosis I had to make as a coach and continue to do so, not only for the competitive juniors that I have, which over the past couple years I've gained quite a few. I take that same look at juniors, whether they're beginners or an adult, that, hey, it's it's all about seizing an opportunity, understanding what's out there, and allowing you to seize it on your own when when the chips are down. A lot of great points there. Um, Well said, John. Pete, there's another thing that we have to consider, um, you know, as as John talked about, you know, developing a game plan with with your your student, as we get into more of a coaching mode as opposed to a teaching mode. Um, and, you know, it's not just about putting the plan together, but it's also putting it into practice, getting the student engaged in the plan, getting them to follow that plan. But every once in a while we get into a situation, Pete, where maybe the plan that we've put together, along with our student, of course, isn't yielding the results that maybe – he or she had hoped for or we would hope for. So my question to you is, once we come to that conclusion and we've maybe tried a few minor tweaks and, and 
and whatnot here and there, adjustments along the way, it's just not panning out. Do we then revamp and create a new plan? How do we handle that situation? Well, that's a great question there. Um, You know, I've always said, you know, the responsibility of the success of what the player does falls on me because, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm the one that has to get the message across, has to get the the quote-unquote plan in place and make sure it's something that they can do so they're successful. Um, But, you know, there are times when, you know, what you do put together isn't working. Um, And Mm -hmm. I can tell you, right away and it's not it, it it's a little bit off of the junior but i'll just say it's a player um i had taken this particular one i had a plan of what i wanted to do with the golf swing and and i'll be the first one to admit um i was not getting anywhere um so mm-hmm. i totally revamped the plan and i just said to him i said look i mean here's the deal i said it's not you know uh, six o'clock news we're watching to notice that your 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 contact with the golf ball is not where it should be I said, um, mm-hmm. that falls on me, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to change this up a little bit, and I explained to them from a cause and effect standpoint why I'm going this route and what uh, you know what I determined needs to be done, and, and thankfully enough, it works right away. So, um, you know, I got, uh, I got some results, you know, right off the bat. Um, but, you know, that happens, and so, yeah, you've got to change the plan. Um, you know, that's just the way it is. I mean, I'm – and I'll be the first one to admit, even from a professional level, I mean, I, I put forth a plan with the player. I took this player about as far as I thought, you know, we could take him. And um, they said, you know, um, I think I need to go another direction, which is fine. That happens too. Mm-hmm. You know, I gave them what I thought they should be doing. Um, and, you know, sometimes the plans work out, sometimes they don't. But you have to be as a coach, as an instructor, as a professional, as a person, to, to have the, the wherewithal to understand that and also have, you know, the ability to say, hey, look, um, we put this together. It's not quite the right one. I'll be the first one to admit that. Um, here's the changes that I propose we make. And you have to be, you know, a big enough person to be able to understand that and take that responsibility because um, I've totally seen it go the other way where, you know what, you just can't do it and it's all on you. And that's, that's the wrong approach because, you know, you can destroy a kid you know, pretty quickly with that, um, you know, mm-hmm. so I think the responsibility should always fall on the coach. Um, a discussion with the parents is good too, because I've done that. I said, look, Hey, this is the direction I thought we should go. It's not working. Here's the changes I want to make. Let's see where we go from here. Um, and if it doesn't work, you know, maybe we have to go a totally different direction from there. And, you know, maybe it's somebody else you need other than me. Um, so you mm-hmm. have to, you have to take that responsibility as a coach, you know, you got to be the one to say, Hey, you know, um, yeah, we put this plan together, but it didn't work. So now here's yep. here are the options. You know, and here's what we have to do. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one, but you know, it does happen. Yeah, and that's a great, great, really way to approach that question, uh, Pete. Because you know, you're 100 percent right. Too often we see, um, and it's not just in golf. We see it in every aspect of life, um, where you know, sometimes egos get in the way. Um, it can even be the students. Sometimes a student gets stubborn and thinks, no, I, I have a better way, and they're not always following uh, the instruction the way they should be, uh, or they're negating certain aspects of the instruction. But I think it, it, it 
it does fall back on the coach, John, because I think from a coaching standpoint, sometimes we're going to do what we think is best for that student um, and, and going to yield the best results based on our experience. And, and again, it doesn't necessarily mean we made a wrong decision, but because we are all individuals and different from one another, sometimes the student uh, themselves, through no fault of their own, um, maybe responds better to different stimuli, if you will, than maybe we originally uh, are putting forth. And sometimes that creative uh, plan needs to be adjusted in some cases or even revamped uh, substantially in order to be successful. Um, and if we've got students who want to progress even beyond uh, you know, a team format, whether it be collegiate or, or whatever, um, we definitely have to be conscious of that. Let me hear your thoughts on that as well. I know I'm sure you agree a lot with what Pete said, but I'm sure you've been faced with situations like that where you've worked with a student for a period of time and things maybe just didn't go down the, the path that you would hope they are. What are some of the things that you've had to do and, and come to realize over time, hey, I, I need to make these changes? What are your thoughts here? Well, this is a great topic, and it's probably something that Pete and I go through every day as we look, as we search and think about all of the different clients we touch, whether competitive or not, um, it, it, how far down the rabbit hole do you really want to go is, is really mm -hmm. what your qu question is about. And at what point do you stop going down the rabbit hole, pull yourself out, and start a new one? Uh, it, it, there's a lot of variables to it. Uh, and mm -hmm. one of the first things I learned as a leader was let's not put blame on anyone else but myself until I have figured out that, number one, I've given every resource possible to that person. B, I've given every bit of support possible to that person. And C, I've exhausted my entire, entire knowledge base to help that person. And my knowledge base is just not me. It's the library in my office. It's you. It's Pete. Mm -hmm. It's the other people that I know in the industry. Yeah. And I will put that blame on me first and will be the first one to pull the plug, especially if I see someone in discomfort, physical, mental, emotional. It will show through in, in a lot of nonverbal first. Uh, and that's typically when I'm thinking about it. And, and I think Pete would agree there's probably been a couple of times where you wake up at night and have this epiphany that if you keep going down the rabbit hole and do this different, then you'll get to the other side. And, and most of the time, uh, I would give you a coin flip's chance that that's going to work. Uh, you have right. to recognize as a coach, hey, have I done everything humanly possible to help this young man or woman out? Number one, if I answered the, all those questions I just raised as yes, I'm then going to go down another variable track. And what is that, that variable track is what is that junior doing? Uh, are they capable of it physically, emotionally, or mentally of what I'm asking them to do? Do they have the time to do it? Do, are they getting the support at home to do it? Sometimes grades, sometimes other priorities get in the way. Uh, you have to look at it very holistically and eliminate the variables starting with the coach first. If you're a coach out there listening, please heed to that advice. Uh, if you're a parent, 
ask the coach, have you done everything humanly possible? My, my son or daughter is this, that, and the other. Before we start changing directions, which I'm willing to do, I trust you. Let's make sure that we've done everything that way. It's okay as a coach to admit that you're wrong. Uh, I don't think anybody really wants to admit that at any point. Right. But there's ways of saying, hey, look, I, we spent two months trying to get this accomplished, and for whatever reason it's not working. I'll take the blame for this. It, I mm-hmm. apologize for you working as hard as you have, regardless of where the blame is pointed. But it's you, the job of the coach and the parent to sort of stop everything in its tracks to say, look, we had this type of success before this point in our journey. We need to back up a little bit, do some Socratic learning to that point, and move in a slightly different direction. Maybe it's a slight alteration. Maybe it's a complete and utter 180-degree change. It doesn't matter. Just everybody understanding from uh, the standpoint of view of coach and parent first, because I think what juniors do is they totally believe in their coach at first Mm -hmm. and go down that road. And if they go down the road and things aren't working, they're, they're of the, the experience level, the age and experience level of not taking ownership quite fully. And they're looking for somebody or something to blame. And that's where the coach and the parent really have to communicate and let the child know, hey, it was mutual. It, we, we did you wrong. But that shouldn't mean they shouldn't trust us anymore. You shouldn't believe in what we're doing. Here's the track record of the coach, or here's your track record. We just got off the record a little bit at this juncture. Let's mm-hmm. go back to this place where you're comfortable and go on from there. And I think if, if more parents were involved with this and have a true understanding of what the coach is racking our brains over uh, day in, day out at some point, uh, they would get a better understanding of how all-in we are with their junior golfer. Mm-hmm. Great point, John. And, you know, one last thing I just want to add to that is I think from a coaching standpoint, when you're working with a junior golfer and you're, you know, getting into, and I hate to use the word slump in, in, in your uh, approach, sometimes it's, I think it's good uh, and it's honest as a coach to bring in another set of eyes, another professional in to take a look at the situation. Because a lot of times when you're entrenched in a program or teaching uh, philosophy, sometimes we get a little bit narrow or our focus gets a little bit narrowed. And sometimes bringing an outside perspective can shed maybe some new uh, light to the situation. And I think that's good as well. Um, And, you know, Pete, as you pointed out, I think, or or might have been John that pointed out earlier uh, about nutrition, there's other factors as well. It may not necessarily be their ball striking. It may not necessarily be um, other aspects of their game. It might be the fact that they're not nutritionally taking care of themselves and they're losing steam out there uh, you know, during their round or during their practice session. So making sure that we cover all of those things. But great points, guys. I think you did a fantastic job, as always, here on the Coach's Corner panel. And um, as always, I'm going to give you guys just a, a minute or two, if you wouldn't mind, uh, just letting the folks know how they can uh, reach out and uh, get in touch with you guys. I'll go, Ted. I'm sorry, Pete, Pete go ahead. Know. Pete, yeah, Pete go ahead fine, first, yeah. then John. <laughs> 
they can. First of all, thanks again, Ted. It's always great being on the show. And John, yeah, you know, you and I have done this a lot together, and uh, I always enjoy listening to what you have to say. It's always a great time on on the show. They can get a hold of me at PeteBuchananGolf.com. All the things that I'm doing are on there. It just makes it simple. Everything's in one spot. And so, um, you know, very, very simple to, to get a hold. And, and I, I always say, you know, just send me a note and let's start a conversation because that's the best way to start to, to get to your golf game and, and let's have a discussion and, and figure out what's going on. And, uh, and then we can start to work on the game from there. But uh, thanks again, Ted. Really appreciate it. Always my pleasure. John, go ahead. Sure, Pete. You kept me out of trouble once again, sir. I'm looking forward to more <laughs> next month. Uh, Ted, always an honor as well. I appreciate the opportunities you provide me. And uh, if anybody's needing to get a hold of me for coaching, uh, it sounds like I was sort of a counselor this evening as well. I, I can freelance with that. John Hughes Golf, that's all you need to remember, whether it's a website, a social media channel, I do want to remind people that you can receive my coaching virtually through Instant Golf Improvement, which is a virtual portal I set up uh, a couple of years ago. It's a great opportunity to get some great coaching, uh, view a lot of great video content within a library, and uh, looking to expand that as we go. Uh, Again, thanks, Ted. Thanks, Pete. And I hope everybody has a great weekend. All right. Sounds good. All right, guys, have a great one, and I will see you next time here on the Coach's Corner panel on Golf Talk Live. Have a good weekend, guys. All right, you too. Thanks, Tim. All right, we're going to take a quick message break, and then we'll be back with this evening's special guest. This edition of Golf Talk Live is brought to you by Golf Pal, the best place to find only the finest in golf training aids and accessories. Get in on some great deals on leading products such as Down Under Board, Rough Soto, Golf Slingshot, and more. Visit golfpal.golf today. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. Golf Pal. We're serious about your game. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple-to-follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to GolfTipsMag.com and subscribe today. All right. Um, very excited to have this evening's guest join me once again. Um, he is the founder and developer of MindTrack Golf. Uh, he was also a uh, PGA touring professional, uh, now retired for uh, 21 years. He's been on the tour, uh, just uh, has developed a, an incredible system. We talked about it a few months back uh, about MindTrack Golf. We're going to talk a little bit about that a little bit later on, but we're going to talk about a few other things as well. Of course, I'm talking about my very special guest and fellow Canadian, uh, Richard Zoko. Please welcome my very special guest. Good evening, Richard. Welcome. Thank you, Ted. Uh, always a pleasure to be with you, and thank you very much for the invitation to chat some golf. All right. <laughs> I'm going to let you do more chatting and I'm going to listen because I know you've got a lot of great things to say. 
One of the things that I, I, I want to talk about, we're going to talk about Mind Golf. We'll get an update on that and, and how are things uh, moving along and some of the other things that you've got cooking there. Um, but I wanted to talk about, you know, since we're both uh, Canadian, uh, the, about the Canadian Open. I mentioned that to you when we set this up. And obviously this year, again, uh, because of the pandemic, uh, they canceled the event, which was supposed to be uh, back in June. Um, right. And yep. uh, ho- hopefully, you know, hopefully we're going to uh, have it next year, but we'll, we'll see what's going to happen with this uh, pandemic that seems to be surging and rising here and there. But um, I want to talk to you about, about a little bit about the history of the game. Now, obviously, I know you've played in the, in the Canadian Open, uh, obviously, over the years. And one question that comes yep. to mind right off the bat, is there was always a lot of talk and a lot of people considered it, not just in Canada but elsewhere, um, that the Canadian Open was considered to be uh, the fifth major. First off, do you agree with that in your assessment? And should it have been made a fifth major? Well, it used to be, you know, when it was considered, this is before the Players' Championship, uh, the Players' Championship came about in, uh, I think, around the mid early 70s. But prior to that, the Canadian Open, and I don't think there's any fifth major. And if there is going to be a fifth major, I believe it should be the Players' Championship. Um, I think mm-hmm. all the, you know, the Open Championships governed by the RNA, U.S. Opens, the USGA, PGA, of course, is the PGA of America, and so forth. And, and mm-hmm. the players themselves, the tour, they're a governing body, and they're the people that are, pl- the contestants that are playing in it. So if there's going to be any major, fifth major, it should be the Players' Championship. And, uh, but, but what you're, um, we're, talk, we're talking about was back in the day when they used to take uh, only four players to the World Series of Golf, and that was it at Firestone. Mm-hmm. And, um, and right. if, I, if um, any, you know, like say if Lee Trevino, when he won the uh, U.S. Open, and and the and the and the British Open, they went to the Canadian Open to get that next guy in line. So that was kind of the mm-hmm. de facto fourth if if someone won two majors in that year. So that's kind of where it got the, at that uh, that position. But uh, since then, uh, you know, the the Canadian Open or the RBC Canadian Open as it is today has changed a lot. It's gone through a lot of uh, right. evolutions, and it's. It was, you know, down the down the pecking order for as far as the PGA Tour event goes for quite some time. Now RBC has really done a great job with their ambassador team, and they have the Heritage Classic in Hilton Head as well, and they're doing a great job. Right. And it's unfortunate they haven't gotten back because they had some, you know, St. George's in the past couple of years is just one of the greatest golf courses on this planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's where actually it was uh, going to be held this year if it had have gone through. So. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, regrettably, they, they put it uh, they put it off another year again because of the yep. uh, COVID concerns, and it's understandable. Um, sure. So, what were some of your? I mean, for for many years, let me back up for a second. For many years, um, the Canadian Open was held. In fact, thirty, I believe, uh, at Glen Abbey in Oakville, Ontario, yeah. and uh, that was always a fun and interesting. I used to go every year that I could uh, to watch you guys uh, tee it up and. A lot of great memories there and, and some interesting holes. What are some of your, uh, in general, of the game? <laughs> we'll get into that in a minute. What are some of your uh, uh, fond memories of playing at Glen Abbey um, and, and the Canadian Open in general? What were some of your fond memories of, of that event oh, and, and yeah. particularly at that well, venue? I've got a lot of fond memories. And my very first Canadian Open, I was a 
just finished my freshman year at Brigham Young University, and I qualified, got to play in 1978 at Glen Abbey. And, boy, at that time, this golf course was tough. That was, you know, Jack had just finished Glen Abbey. He just finished building Memorial. And those were some of the toughest golf courses in on the tour at the time. And uh, so that mm-hmm. was a, a fond memory. I, I, another time, um, a couple other ones. One, I think it was 87 or 88, that I had the 54-hole lead. Or tied with the lead going into the final round. And, you know, I hadn't won yet. And, and this is, you know, the Canadian Open is like a, <clears throat> it's a major championship to us Canadians. And, um, sure. And, and so the pressure, and I was tied with Curtis Strange and I'm playing in the final group. And Curtis Strange is the number one player in the world. And quite frankly, I think he knew he was going to win. I knew he was going to win. And he knew that I knew he was going <laughs> to win. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to settle down. I shoot, you know, make three bogeys and no birdies that day. And I'm just trying to, you know, uh, be as comfortable as possible. But another time, I think it was 84, I finished fifth in the tournament. And I'm on the 18th hole. This is when, this is, that's right, when Greg Norman is, wins the tournament. And he's going head-to-head with Jack. And they're coming down 17. And I'm coming down 18. And this is on Sunday and I make this shot, and the, I birdie the last hole, and in the, in the, it's on television. And my <clears throat> the roar of the crowd backed Jack Nicholas off his shot on 17. And usually mm-hmm. Jack does that <laughs> to other people. And I was like, hey, right, pretty cool. I I got back Jack Nicholas <laughs> off his shot when my birdie went in. So though I remember that, and uh, and 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 I re- I recall Jack. He was you know it was his design, and he kind of like played mm-hmm. host when he was still playing, and he was like a father to so many young players, and and um, he oh, was yeah. so nice and warm to everybody, and it was it was I've got some fantastic memories playing twenty six of those Canadian Opens, and um, a lot of fond memories uh, that are that are under the bridge now, Ted. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I hear you. You know, it was a great event. One of the things I really loved about Glen Abbey, and you don't see a lot of in, in other uh, golfing venues, certainly not, uh, you know, on the PGA Tour, or at least at that point. Um, and you obviously could describe it much better than, than I could, is you had, I believe, was it five holes that were down in the valley? I think mm-hmm. it started with hole number 11. And then 11, I think was it right. was 15 or... Yeah, and then what was it? Fifteen Popped or 16, sixteen was the last hole. Sixteen. That's yeah. that's right. Fifteen was yeah. the last one. Yes, yeah, the part three. Yeah. And Tell yeah, us about so playing I mean, the valley. Sorry. Yeah. The, yeah, the valley holes were 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 very interesting. Eleven, you teed off from a, a massive drop to the middle of the fairway. It was a beautiful, one of the best holes out there. Then you've got the this sixteen uh, mile creek that runs through the the that valley on the bottom that comes into play on a, on a few shots, but uh, yeah, a great golf course. Uh, um, and, but, and then it changed. I, it became, it's ironic that it was such a tough golf course in the, in the seventies when it came on tour. And then <clears throat> when Glen Abbey kind of left the PGA tour as, a, as the, <clears throat> the, the venue, it was a very easy mm. golf course. It's just, I suppose the way players have evolved and how the game has evolved and the equipment's evolved, it really turned it from one of the most difficult right. golfers on the PGA Tour to literally one of the easiest golfers on the PGA Tour. I remember um, years ago, one of the very first times I ever went to Glen Abbey, 
I made the mistake, and you'll know what I'm talking about. And down in the valley, there's a bridge crossing over the creek. Uh, I think it's just after hole 12. And yep. if you didn't, depending on which group you were following, if you had a, you know, if you were with the leaders or whatnot, I mean, you're crazy to go down there anyways because you'd never get out uh, to be able to watch them play. But if you didn't get in front, in other words, if you didn't cross that bridge right. before the leaders came up, you weren't getting across because the crowds were just so uh, tremendous at that point. What were some of the tough holes? What did you find? Uh, and I'm talking about Glen Abbey, of course. What were some of the mm-hmm. tough holes for you that really presented you the most challenges? Well, you know, I remember I played a lot. <clears throat> as it turned out, I played a lot with Lee Tribino. <clears throat> Sorry for the cough. Uh, on that, mm-hmm. and, and watching him play, and they, I had the fortunate uh, fortune to play well there for quite a few years, and 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 the tee shot on eleven was very hard to put into the into uh, the fairway, and if you didn't, you were you got into trouble. The twelfth, um, mm-hmm. the par three was difficult. The uh, par five was an opportunity on um, on thirteen to go for and two perhaps if you were a long hitter, which I wasn't. Uh, so you had to rely mm-hmm. on that wet shot. The tee shot on 14 with this angled uh, <clears throat> creek that was going, and the more space you bit off to the right, <clears throat> the the more you had to carry. That mm-hmm. presented a challenge. And, uh, and, and I recall, remember, like on 14, I'd hit a good tee shot off the tee and get it in the fairway, and I'd have a three iron into these greens, and, and, and they were right. tough. Nicholas courses and he always built his courses that it like that suited his game where if you hit, were able to hit mm-hmm. your long irons uh, soft and with a fade you had an advantage and I, I just didn't have that shot I had to uh, you know I hit it low and hard which, which was my shot so I found it to be a very challenging golf course and uh, but there was um, you know it was fun I remember one time coming off the 13th uh, Trevino got into it with one of the guys, <clears throat> one of the people in the fans, and boy, oh boy, right. I saw a side of Trevino. Like, I love Lee. He's, he's love playing with him. He's yeah. a great player. But boy, you, um, someone says something in the wrong way or in the wrong manner, um, he has no problem getting into the crowd and getting after it. It was, <laughs> it'd be interesting to see what would happen today you know, with today's game. I, I want to share um, very quickly with you a, a Lee Trevino story from the Canadian Open. I, I don't recall which year it was, but I used to follow uh, a lot of different players. But one year I was fortunate enough, uh, I got in and followed Lee. And this, of course, was when his uh, caddy Herman was still uh, on yep. the scene. And uh, before Herman had lost the weight. So he was, you know, as you know, a big man. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it was uh, before they had moved it from June uh, to, to September, and then they've moved mm-hmm. it back, I know. But in June, it, was, it would get pretty hot up in, even in Glen Abbey, up yes. in Canada. It would get pretty humid, right? right? Yes, and it would. So, you know, of course, everybody's sweating. And, and I remember a couple of instances, two particular that happened that particular day. It was on Sunday, and uh, it was on the 10th hole was the first one. And uh, I was on the left side of the fairway, of course, following the, the group. And it was hotter than Hades. And Lee was just really sweating up a storm, and he asked Herman for the towel. Well, the whole time, the front nine, they were walking around. uh, Herman had been wiping his brow and everything else with his towel. And by the time he handed it over to Lee, it was just sopping wet and full of his sweat. And the look (laughs) that Trevino gave him could have launched a thousand ships and i don't remember exactly what he said but it wasn't kind put it that way and he just sort of threw him back you know uh, the towel back 
But the other one that really struck home, that, uh, and you know what it's like around the 18th green when you've got the fans all around there towards the end of Sunday. And Trevino was, I don't recall who he was playing with, but he came up the 18th uh, uh, fairway and he hit, a, you know, hit his uh, shot onto the green. And it was so hot that nobody thought there were bets going on uh, throughout the day that Herman wasn't going to make it. There was just, he was going to have a heart attack. Right. He was going to collapse. <laughs> it was just dark, darn hot. Trevino sure. got up onto the 18th green. I kid you not. And he got a, had a little towel with him and he laid it out on the green and he got down and Herman's of course, fixing the, you know, the divot out in the fairway. And uh, he's walking up and Trevino drops to his knees and just starts bowing as, as Herman's walking up towards the green and by this time, there was about 35 or so thousand fans around, there, and they just went crazy. They just laughed, and they were just chucked because nobody thought Herman was going to make it around the golf course, and even Lee didn't believe it. And it was oh, a similar yeah. situation to what you were talking about earlier. Nicholas was, I think, still a, a hole back, and he had to, as you say, pretty much back off because the crowd just went nuts. But, you know, Trevina was just such a, a showman out there. I mean, he was a phenomenal golfer, as you know, but he just loved to entertain the crowds, and he did a good job that day, I must admit. But um, it was interesting to watch him play, but the interaction between him and his caddy. And I want to ask you, because mm-hmm. I know, obviously, did you have a, a, a caddy that, you, that carried your bag for any length of time? And what was the relationship that you had? What was it that you relied on them for? Because a lot of people that, that obviously don't play on tour would like to know how the caddies and, <clears throat> and players really interact out there what what is it you rely on them the most for well it's um it's basically they all the caddies they know how to go through all the procedures of getting the yardages and 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 their job basically is to i i think to control the horse just like a jockey does to kick it in the butt when it needs it to snap it out of certain types of mindsets type of thing. A good caddy does that. And when it, when you mesh with a caddy, you know, you're, you're, you seem to get on the same page of picking the right club, the right shot and getting their, them to confirm, not just say yes, because they have to say yes, but to absolutely believe this is the right shot. And it gives you a a, a boost. And when you're on that, you it's kind of a rhythmic thing. And, uh, and, 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 and at the same time, you can fall out of rhythm with your caddy and, and things don't mm-hmm. go well and the chemistry doesn't work. And that's the time when you get to, you, you, you just trade caddies. I've had caddies for years. Right. I've had caddies for short periods of time. I'd go through phases where um, I'd get a little floppy and I'd take over mm-hmm. and, you know, and say, I'd say, give me the yardage book. I'm doing the yardage book. Or um, right. <laughs> because you need to shake right. things up. Or you yep. say you need to shake things up the other way and say, here's the yardage book. I'm no longer doing it. I, don't, I just want to think about the shot. You do the numbers. And sometimes you do both to confirm. I was, I've never been one to let my caddy uh, read my putts. Um, mm-hmm. I felt that even though if I read the putt uh, improperly, um, that my conviction to hit the putt would work out best in the o- overall and and I just felt like, you know, no one's going to read the putt better than me. I always felt like I could read the putt perfectly. It doesn't always hit the line. But when I did get confused, that's only when I bring when, when I'd, I'd bring my caddy. And it was very on few occasions. I'm not one. I don't like what caddies are doing. I said this to Mike Weir a couple years ago at the Canadian Open. I said, look, mm-hmm. picking a shot 
shouldn't be a committee meeting. You know, what are you going to go right. into? You know, like what happens if you're, you believe this is the shot is, is what you, you know, what you're going to do. And your caddy says something that's very different. Uh, now all of a sudden it could bring doubt into your eyes. It don't, it, you, you better go down swinging than don't swing freely at all. And, and, and mm-hmm. I always like what um, Jackie Burke Jr. said. And, and I guess, caddies today are getting better they're evolving like the players caddies today are better than caddies sure. in my time and then caddies in 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 um in uh jackie burke jr's day but jackie burke jr i love this he goes he said in his, in his texas accent he goes you know what he says i wouldn't i wouldn't ask my caddy for the time of day if he was wearing two wristwatches <laughs> i love that thing <laughs> So it just well, it goes to show you that uh, you know times change. Yeah, and I think there's a time, you know, as you sort of alluded to, I think there's a time, um, you know, for the caddy to step in if they see that their player is is maybe not. And again, obviously, it's the player's decisions what they're going to do. But I think there is a time for the caddy to sort of step up and say, you know, hey, um, maybe this might not be what's going to help you at this particular moment. Um, and obviously some players are going to be more receptive to that. But then there's a, a time, too, where they need to step back and just let the player go and not, sure. especially if they're doing well, right? I mean, right? So you've got to find that balance. And that's not an easy thing to do because obviously you've got different personalities, of course. Um, well, but that presents uh, Right. <laughs> it takes yeah. a lot of courage and, on the caddies part. You, you've got to – there's a few that are really good out there. Um, Stevie, for for all you know, he, when he was working with Tiger, he worked for Ray Floyd. Right. He worked for him. He would take char- he would take charge, or I wouldn't say he would take charge. I would no, that's not true. He wouldn't be afraid to step in, like you mentioned. If if if, if right. he saw his player, you know, if they're on track together. The caddy knows when the yep. player is off track, and the player knows when the caddy's off track. So it goes both ways. So sometimes you know a player gets off track and and he goes down a rabbit hole or something like that. And a good caddy will say, mm-hmm. hey, pro, you know, back off here. Let's, uh, let's have a, a thought. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. that. You know, the players go, hey, look, yeah. let's have a conversation. Do you see something? Let's talk about it. And then get clarity. The decision the decision's made, and then you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think, you know, from a, from a caddy standpoint, you know, it, it's, they've, they've obviously got to know their player very, very well. And that's, that takes time. I mean, if you're just starting with a caddy right now, let's say, you know, this year, um, there's a sort of a trial period where you're getting to know one another, you're getting to feel mm-hmm. comfortable with one another. And, you know, certainly some good decisions, hopefully more good than bad are going to be made. Uh, but there's going to be some bad decisions. And you're right. I think there, there has to be a certain yeah. courage that the caddy has to be able to say, hey, you know, Dick, let's, uh, let's, let's rethink this, this position right here. Right. And, and um, and if they're afraid to do that, then it's not going to work. And you know what? Sometimes they're going to make a suggestion or they're going to say something to you that's not going to hit the right chord. They've got to right. be prepared that you're going to hit them with both barrels too. So, you know, right. they're going to have thick skin, right? I've I got to tell you this this caddy story of mine. There was this caddy out there, and if you've been on tour any, you know, any amount of time or been a caddy out there, his name was Harry Cadell, Harry C., and, and Harry C. was one of the most passionate caddies. I brought him out, like, this was 1982 in Greensboro. And, uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and he, was, he, was, he, he wanted to take charge. He couldn't help himself to take charge. And, uh, and, and I'd get into more fights with him. And I loved the guy, and he loved me, and he loved everyone. Mm-hmm. He was very close with Tom Lehman. 
and, uh, and right. you guys out there. And I'll never forget, this was 10 years later, or, you know, I won my first golf tournament with Harry C. in 92 in Hattiesburg. And I'll never forget uh, coming down the last few holes, and he could read the grain really well. And I couldn't read grain in, 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 in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. The grain was really strong. And I'd say to him, you know, so i am got the lead on Sunday in the back nine. I'm trying to win this golf tournament for my first time. And, and uh, Harry's, he, he's getting nervous. And, and, um, and I said, Harry, look, I need you to stop. Stop trying to take control here. And says, all I want you to do, all I want you to do is read the green. I want you to tell me which way the green is going, this way or that way. And that's it. Don't say anything yep. else. Don't tell me how, how far it is. And he couldn't help himself. And he'd say, Pro, I want you to put it out there about three feet to the left, and I want you to slide. I'd go, Harry, Harry, stop. I need you to – we got into a, almost a fist fight coming down 17 and 18, and I'm just telling him to shut up. And then, and then I win the tournament. It was great. It was, it was fascinating. But then one time we're playing, and this was another 10 years later, we're in Fort Smith, uh, Arkansas, playing in a, in a, in a, in a uh, uh, Corn Ferry Tour event, um, and in the pro-am, and, and, and Harry likes to get in there and control all the amateurs. And the amateurs are nervous right. to begin with. And Harry's doing this and this. And I just, my eyes are rolling, and I'm just letting Harry do his thing. And, 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 he, and so on this par three, Merrill Nervigan's on the eighth hole. And it's a, a slope, this green slopes left to right really hard. And this guy's getting up on the tee, and Harry is about to pull it back. And Harry goes, whoa, 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 hold on here. And I go, oh, geez, Harry. And he pulls this, this amateur off. And he says, what I, what I need you to do is, I, come on over here. I need you to tee up on this right side of the tee because your natural fade, you're going to pull it, and it's going to take and sweep down there, and it's going to be perfect. Well, sure enough, if this guy doesn't move his tee over and he hits this shot, and he makes a hole in one. It wow. was the damnedest thing I've ever seen. And Harry is beaming, and I'm going, oh, my oh, God, <laughs> this, this is out of control. But Harry was a great guy. People loved him on the, on the tour, even though he was a pain in the butt. A lot of the times his heart was in the right place, and he died far too young. He died far too young. Yeah. But a uh, lot, lot of great <laughs> stories on caddies on the PGA Tour, that's for sure. What a great story, uh, and thank you for sharing that. Um, you obviously had the, the pleasure over your career to play with a lot of great players, uh, some from uh, eras gone by, shall we say, and even some uh, a little bit more recent, um, you know, before you officially uh, retired from the tour. Who were some of the memorable players that you got to play with that you really enjoyed? Um, who were the ones that you really, you know, just meshed with out in the golf course? Well, um I mean, as far as an experience goes, like, you know, even though, let's say I'm 63 years old right now and I got on the tour in 1982, uh, that was a time um, before the old greats, before us, you know, my time. That was fascinating. One, mm-hmm. one of the most special moments I've had is, is uh, playing with Sam Snead in the PGA Tour event. There used to be this mm-hmm. uh, PGA t- uh, Tour event used to partner with a senior event, and, and I played with Fred Haas from, from Louisiana, and we got paired with J.C. Sneed mm-hmm. and Sam Sneed. So it was a treat to just to be able to say um, I played with Sam Sneed in the PGA Tour event. So that was number one. I have gotten to know Byron Nelson. One year we did right. an Oilman's event up in Banff and gotten to know 
um, uh, Byron and Peggy personally, and that's been a treat in my life. He sent me some of the, some of the kindest cards when I won mm-hmm. and, um, and, and considered he, I mean, he's so gracious with people. If you get to know him, you are truly a friend of Byron's. And uh, that is one of the highlights of my life. But, uh, you know, played with Jack Nicholas on Sunday in a major championship, 1984 at Shoal Creek. And I got to play mm-hmm. with Arnold Palmer in the, in the uh, San Diego Open back in 83. I was still, actually, it was the first, yeah, it was January 83 or February. I was still wearing the headphones in Disco Dick. <laughs> it was quite funny. <laughs> so I'm on the team. I, I get paired with Arnold Palmer, and I'm nervous as hell. I mean, I'm playing with the king, right? And, 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 and I'm right. standing on the team. I've got these this headphones on. I'm listening to Led Zeppelin or something like that. I don't even know what it was, but it was hard rock. And 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 I and so Arnie comes up and and uh, I meet him, and he goes, "What you got going on here?" I said, oh, "I just you know listen to music." So he says, "Do you mind if I try it?" I said, "Sure." So I take these headphones off. <laughs> Arnie puts them on, and I mean, uh, Led Zeppelin is cranking it out. I don't think it was Arnie's tunes, but uh, he kind of, he took it off, shook his head, gave it back to me. <laughs> but uh, he was a treat to play with as well. But. Um, Guys, like, you know, it was great to play with Trevino, and I played with Gary Player and got to know Gary a little bit. And But just the guys in my era, you know, um, uh, Greg yeah. Norman as well. And, and uh, oh, gosh, it's just everyone in that in that category of people. It was um, it was just uh, Tom Watson, Nick Price, you know, all the guys. It was uh, – they're just – they're like family. You spend so much time out there. Mm-hmm. There are wives and children become close with them, and mm-hmm. uh, it's like a traveling circus. Who were some of the tough competitors that you went up against? I mean, obviously, you, you guys were mm-hmm. all good in, in your own way and, and different uh, styles, if you will. But who were some of the really tough players out there on tour um, that you got a chance to see and said, wow, these guys are, are yeah. really tight? These guys are good. Yeah. Who are some of them? Trevino, Trevino was one of those guys when he got playing good. Um, uh, Hale Irwin, probably the, the toughest guy. I, I remember um, I had an experience with Hale that was very positive. It was at the PGA when Azier won. What was that, 92? At um, mm-hmm. um, uh, Inverness. And I was playing well. And, and Hale was playing well. And, and it was a major championship playing with Hale when we kind of both started playing well together. And he, I, I noticed he, he started to um, appear to me a little different rather than just totally ignoring, which he does to most golfers. And, you know, that's a mental strength of his, but there was a rhythm right. thing. I was playing well, he was playing well, and he was giving me the nod. Same with Ray Floyd. I played with Ray Floyd at the U S open at, uh, up in Rochester as well. And, and when you play well with these guys, a, a magic a thing happens. Well, it did in my mind that they start to accept you and, say, and, and respect when you play well. Um, uh, and, and, and that's probably one of the, some of the coolest things that I've ever experienced is to be able to kind of stay at pace with these guys. And, uh, and you know, even when I won Milwaukee, and, you know, Greg Norman was in the field, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Payne Stewart, um, you yeah. know, those are the things that you you really look forward to competing against. And if you can beat the best who are in the game, then, you know, you just it makes it that much sweeter. 
Yeah, there were some great, uh, you know, players. Uh, you've mentioned a, a number of them, and you know, they were they were fun to watch. Uh, I can imagine for some, um, you know, Trevino was probably difficult to play alongside because he was a talker, of course, and uh, liked to you know, kibitz, if you will, out in the golf course. And I, I know Nicholas. Uh, I think was sort of half kidding, but I know I've heard him say a number of times over the years that he was uh, a challenge to say the mm-hmm. least. Were you <laughs> were you somebody? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm trying to put it uh, polite. Yeah. Casey's listening. Um, were there players, and, and and again, you don't have to get into specifics, but were there players that you found it more difficult to play up against? Not necessarily that they were. Um, uh, better or worse or difficult, but maybe their style of play, um, maybe their rhythm is a better way to put it, um, just didn't gel with yours. And I'm sure that happens a lot sure. out on tour where you're maybe a quicker player, they're a little slower, and it throws you off your route. Was there anything like that? Yeah, again, you don't have to name names, but were there times like sure. that for you? And if so, how did you overcome it? Oh, yeah. You, you have to learn to play with your best friend and your worst enemy. I've had, I remember one time at Colonial, I'm playing with a fellow, and, um, and uh, you know, he's just notorious of not being a nice person. Let's put it that way, so, you know, as nice as I can put it. <laughs> and so you try and just, you know, just go play your own game. And, and I remember we're on the, whatever it was, the par three over the water, the hole where Annika birdied um, at, at Colonial mm-hmm. lives in Fort Worth, Texas, and um, and it starts to open up and pour. So, uh, and this guy just he he likes to get his nose into other people's business all the time, and uh, mm-hmm. and I got I can I can tolerate guys like that, not a problem whatsoever. So, it's pouring, and I t- hit my leg, my putt down there, and it goes down there about uh, two inches away. And I grab my umbrella from my caddy, leaving him in the rain. I put the <laughs> umbrella over me, and I and I walk up and tap my ball into the hole. And he bolts out, you cannot do that. And I go, you cannot do what? He says, you cannot have that artificial, that umbrella over your head while you strike a putt. I go, yes, I can. He says, need to call the official. I go, let's call the official. So Glenn Tate. He comes driving up in his cart, and uh, and this guy is such a horse's rear end that uh, he doesn't want to do right. it discreetly. He wants to make a noise of it. So I walk over to Glenn. He comes up, and he goes, what's the situation? So I tell him, I said, Glenn, I'm holding the umbrella over my head while it's pouring rain, and I tapped in. And he, I'm telling the situation, and from 50 yards, this guy goes, Glenn, will that be one shot, or will that be two? <laughs> <laughs> and there's no penalty and he says no and, and right. he says well that's an artificial like uh, you know thing protecting and I said so's your rain jacket he says you right. know so when I put it in perspective there's no penalty and then we're going down the next right. one comes over and I'm just going you know I, I know what this guy's all about and he says well hey listen no hard feelings and I just said well I think it's best you just walk on the other side of the fairway <laughs> and, and you just leave it like that and just and, right. But you've got to you've got to have if your emotions aren't in control, those things you can't let them get in you because there's enough horses rear ends out there in this world, and there's plenty oh. of them on the PGA Tour where you've got to take <laughs> care of your own business. And if you're if you're a bit concerned like that, you're 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 probably not going to make it very long. Right, uh, and, and and like you said, it's it's in every aspect of life. Um, obviously, sure. you know, we all 
work on our swing. We work on our game. Uh, but we also admire um, another player's uh, approach to the game. Who swing on tour, um, both when you were out on tour and today, um, do you admire? Do you say, you know, wow, they got a great swing, or I really like how they approach the ball? You know, Freddie Couples comes to mind. A lot of people were very envious of Freddie's swing. Um, another one was Ernie Els, very smooth, very uh, mm-hmm. fluid. Was there anybody out on tour at the time when you were playing whose swing you really admired or, or even their game that you really admired? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Nick Price. I, 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 mm-hmm. Nick Price, when he came out, we came out the same you know, year in the qualifying school, my second go-around in 1983. I remember playing a practice round with him and, and had just watched him play well and in, in contend in the Open Championship. So he came over, and, 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 and Nick didn't, wasn't a world beater at the start. It took him five or six years to kind of catch his, his, um, his way. But in his mm-hmm. prime, Nick Price's swing, to me, it was on plane, it was structured, it was tight, and it was stable. I love Nick Price's mm-hmm. swing and how he could compress yep. that golf ball down the line. It was just a, it was beautiful. Uh, so that's a physical swing that I loved. I, I played with Ernie in 92 in Hong Kong. Ernie had a great golf swing as well, structured, powerful, uh, but not as tight mm-hmm. as Nick's pro. Nick's was tight. And right. To me, that was, it was fantastic. Today I was, I was looking at uh, Adam Scott's swing. Um, I think Golf TV mm-hmm. put it out on Twitter uh, to music, and, and, and boy, oh, boy, is that a gorgeous golf swing and quite frankly with that i think he may have you know technically the best golf swing there is and 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 unfortunately i think with that golf swing um you know from a mental perspective adam has i wish he had a a desire that was just as strong as the swing because i think that thing given in 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 into a real hard determined champion's mind would have produced a lot more major champions championships mm-hmm. you know it's interesting that you say that because uh, i was thinking about uh, a number of players but one particular and and i want to get your thoughts on this you know we see so many players that have incredible swings incredible ball strikers luke donald comes to mind and the reason why i bring him up is there was a time out on tour when he first came out and he started working with Ledbetter. And uh, his, 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 his swing was just incredible. Uh, struck the ball well. They, they were even talked. They said that they thought at that particular time and moment in his career that he was becoming one of the best ball strikers on tour. But yet his, mm-hmm. his repertoire of, of or um, not repertoire, what's the word I'm looking for, his resume of tournaments, uh, wins in other words, is, is pretty light. Why is it mm-hmm. – and, and the reason I'm asking you this, uh, Dick, is because uh, from an amateur standpoint, there's a lot of amateurs listening tonight that f- go crazy on trying to perfect their golf swing, and yet it right. doesn't yield results. Why is a right. player like a Luke Donald, not him personally, but just in general, that has such a phenomenal swing, can belt the ball a mile, can get it just wherever he wants to go, but can't seem to put the numbers together to get a win? Well, uh, Luke, Luke- – Luke Donald was the number one money winner on the European tour and the PGA tour in the same year. That's an accomplishment yep. no one has ever achieved. And that was, and I think when mm-hmm. you play a, the European tour and the PGA tour, boy, you're burning the candle at both ends. 
And and Luke's mm-hmm. not a big dude. I mean, I think if you no. want to have stamina, you got to be built literally like a bull in order to have stamina of a bull. And 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 I think mm-hmm. Luke is he's probably a little s- smaller than I am. <clears throat> and um, right. and I think there's you know uh, I think it, it, he structurally has a great swing. I think it could be a little it's it could be a, it's a little loose. It could be a little more tighter mm-hmm. from my perspective. Because um, I think that's where you get the sustained ball striking, and, and when your ball striking is still real good, that's what you want to get to. <clears throat> but um, but I think you're absolutely right. I think when people do go to, I don't care what. There's a lot of guys. If you're in search of constantly improving your golf swing, if you think that improving your golf swing and perfecting your golf swing will make you a better player, that's a problem. And, and sure, you know, having a fundamental golf swing is important, but golf performance in golf tournaments is very different than having a good golf swing. And, and, and that's what, you mm-hmm. know, mind track is all about as well. And it's important. Mm-hmm. So the people that are great champions have great, powerful minds. And I think it's important that we look at that in that direction is when specifically when it relates to a performance, it's more about how you perform on the golf course. And there's a couple of components right. on that that are, that are more important, that, that, that it, shouldn't just, it shouldn't be about golf swing. Right. And this is going to be a great lead-in to talk about mind track now. I want to shift gears one more time um, as we sort of ease into the, the latter part of our discussion tonight. Um, there was obviously moments, as any good player has um, out there, you, you're striking the ball well, everything's going well, but mentally things aren't just coming together. Um, there came a point in time uh, you talked about here, and you mentioned it the last time, where sort of the, the light went on, and, and you said it was in the final round of the 2000 U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, um, where you sort of had that breakthrough moment. What was, the, what was the realization that you discovered at that point? What was going on before? Let, let's back up. What was going on before, before then? That, yeah, yeah and, and, and what, was it, what was about that particular moment that a light went on and said, aha, here's what the problem is, now I get it. Yeah, in, in 1999, I was coming back to the PGA Tour after taking a bit of time off, and I really wanted to make some changes. Number one, in my putting, I wanted to be a better putter and, um, and obviously a better player. And, 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 and at the end of 1999, I was trying to access the present moment. I read enough books, worked with enough sports psychologists, that I knew that in order to play your best, and I, I played my best, and everyone plays their best when they're in the present moment. And, 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 and I found out that every time I got into contention, I couldn't get in the present moment. I would get too anxious. And I think every golfer can understand that. You don't need to be a tour player to understand that. So I said, <clears throat> I have to change something because I'm going backwards in these situations. And I, so I started to looking at, look at where my attentional focus was, and it was always on the score or always on the result. So knowing mm-hmm. that, that old adage that you've got to stop being result-oriented, I started to look at, well, what do I have to put, where do I have to put my attention? And so I, at that moment, I, I decided that we had to put your attention, break the habitual pattern of thought, from being result-oriented and shifting your attentional thought onto your two key performance markers of every single shot. And then it leads to the next question, well, what are those? 
Well, there's, there's two key <laughs> performance markers. Like in business, in the business world, we do key performance indicators. And those are – it's a metrics in which what directly hits the bottom line, the, 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 the performance. So golf is no different. Every golf shot's no different. And those two things are being able to assess the shot. So if you're putting, that's mm-hmm. read the green. And then execute the shot that you see. And then putting your attention on those. So I started, I created this system in longhand. And after every round, after every shot, my goal to going into every shot was, okay, my goal right here, you do a hard reset for every single shot. And your goal mm-hmm. is to make an excellent assessment and an excellent execution. And if you do that to your level of ability, you'll perform well. And you want to get, put your attention on those two things. And then you, you grade those two key performance markers. So let's say you're standing on the 17th hole at Sawgrass in the Players' Championship on Sunday and everything's coming unglued or, or, you know, or you're in a pressure situation. Because you've conditioned yourself to think this way, it's part of your pre-shot routine. So your first job is right. to assess. Get the yardage. Mm-hmm. What's the yardage? Okay, it's 156. You know, where's the pin? Oh, it's tucked over to the right, over the bunker, right beside the water. So part of your assessment right. is to pick the right club. What is the wind coming in this way or coming in that way? What kind of shot are you going to hit? And where are you going to? Are you going to go at the pin? Are you going to hook it in there around the water? Or are you going to fade it in there from the middle of the green? All these factors uh, make up your assessment. So you, you come to that conclusion. You make a decision. And then your job is to execute it. And then after you've finished that shot, regardless of where it goes, you give yourself a judgment of excellent, satisfactory, or unsatisfactory to each of those two key performance markers. So in our app at MindTrack, you, 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 you collect that data. So I was starting to get really good at this, and I started to literally, Ted, detach emotionally mm-hmm. from the result. So I'm standing over a five-foot putt, and my attention is not to make the putt. It's to, have I got this assessed properly? Yes, I really do. And then this is the execution. Right. And when I execute that putt and it goes in the hole, it gives me a feeling that I'm going, wow, I really got control now. Because prior to that, I'd go, oh, knock it in, knock it in. I've got to make this putt. And I would literally make a poor execution and vomit on myself over this putt. That's when I get really mad right. because that's just craziness. So my shift right. in focus to all these things, it got to a point where I got very good at it and I became very motivated to score well on my key performance markers. That's what I, mm-hmm. I changed my onto. And when I did that, I, 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 I literally didn't know where I was on the score and it didn't matter. I kept it up and, and it got me to the point where I shot as a, on Sunday, I went out there when I shot 30 on the front nine on Sunday at the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach in 2000, I walked off the, onto the 10th tee walking down the fairway, and my caddy says, you know what you shot? And I went, no, and I don't care. And he told me that I, you shot 30. I went, wow, that's pretty damn good for U.S. Open. I still didn't care. That was when the aha moment. I still didn't care when he told me. I stayed on top of my key performance markers. And I went, wow, this is, uh, this is something special. And and obviously, you know, as you mentioned, you you put this together in an app um, to allow uh, the rest of us to be able to do the same thing. So when somebody's utilizing this app, when they're using the app, kind of gently walk us through the process. What what are they doing yep. with the app? How does it generally work? 
and and then once they've gone through their round, obviously I'm I'm assuming there's a system that they can go back and look at and assess and say, okay, this is yep. where I did this, this is where I did that. There's information that's yep. going to give them some good feedback, right? So go ahead. Yeah. After every round, you get three reports sent to you and your golf coach. So part of the app is, and it's called Mind Track Golf. You can, anyone, we're still in our beta program, but you can go to the Apple Store right. and download it for free. And Mind Track is M I M I N D T R A K. Mind track, no C in there. So what you do is you, mm-hmm. you load up any golf course you're going to play, and you go through the process of uh, putting your profile in there, and you're going to play your golf course today, and you do all that setup. And you, 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 before every round, you know, you, it defaults to the first hole, but if you're playing a shotgun, mm-hmm. you can change your ting off on the 14th or uh, do all that stuff. You've got to – then you want to identify whether it's a casual round a serious round or a mm-hmm. tournament round, because those types of rounds really are a significant factor in the perception of every player. You, you, I think you know right. exactly what I'm talking about, and, and your listeners are yep. who are you know you play in your club championship and, and all hell breaks loose, and so right. and the data you capture in in those rounds are very different. So that tells you right there it's it's very psychological. So what you do. You, you, you're on the first hole, and it defaults. If it's a par four, it defaults to your driver. So you, your goal, obviously, is to make an excellent assessment that, you know, and, and an excellent execution. So when you, after the moment you hit your shot, <clears throat> I pull it out of my back pocket, and I click three buttons, and it takes three seconds, and I enter the data of the club I used on whether it, <clears throat> uh, uh, the, uh, grading the assessment and grading the execution, it goes back in my pocket. Then I hit my second shot, and you do this all the way through the hole. And let's say I let's say I I, sh- I hit my tee shot out of bounds on the first hole, Ted. So I make an unsatisfactory mm-hmm. execution, and and I mm-hmm. my provisional, I hit it down the middle, hit it on the green, two putt, pretty standard. Thereafter, and make a six. So at the end of the hole, the whole summary, I'm going. It, it you you um, can you put in your shot lost events and shot gained events. So um, there's mm-hmm. a page on there where there's a plus button and a minus button so on the tee shot where it says my it profiles my unsatisfactory um, execution there's a there's a a, a unhappy face that's the emoji that says my unsatisfactory execution well i'm going to hit that minus spot twice and it's going to pop up as two lost shot events attached to the execution of that tee shot and then I move on to the next mm-hmm. hole and then on the next hole I am going to do the same thing on every hole you you punch in each shot's valuation of your key performance marker your assessment your execution and then on the whole summary you start to attach shots gain like say on the second hole I drop a 30-foot putt for birdie and then I'm yep. going to go on my on my uh, so I obviously made an excellent execution with that putt and an excellent assessment and then I'm going to attach a shot gained event to that second shot, the birdie putt, or whatever the putt was. And then at the, you're mm-hmm. going to go through your whole round, and you know as a golf pro that the best way to improve a golfer's ability and performance on the golf course is to stop them hemorrhaging lost shot events through the round. Everyone, like, right. you can go through, you're, you're, you're hemorrhaging eight, nine shots around. And if you just shore yep. up that battle 
and improve it and reduce that number down, you're going to improve. So that's what the, the, the mm-hmm. and so when you finish the round, three reports pop out. And if your coach is, if you've invited your coach to be on your, uh, on the app and he's, mm-hmm. he or she's on the app as well, every single round of golf that you finish, these three reports are going to automatically go to all the people that you put on your share list. It could be your, your swing coach, your mental coach, your fitness coach, your nutrition coach, and your recovery coach, if you've got one. (laughs) And and, and they're going to get to these reports, and I'm going to go through them. The first report is called the scorecard report, and it's going to give you uh, an outline round on the front nine and back nine of every shot lost event you you, – and shot gained event you had. And then the the second report is called the key performance marker trend graph. So your key performance Mm -hmm. markers – you're, after three rounds, you're going to create your own baseline standard. And then each round after that is going to be a percentage up or percentage down on, based on your baseline standard. Because this data that's compared to PGA Tour players and shot length, that's not good data to be, mm-hmm. that you need to be or most people need to be compared to. They need to be compared right. against their own data. And then yep. the, 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 the third report, the round summary, it, what it does is it, it identifies where your shots your shot lost events and your shot gained events are as that relate to all your full shots, like your tee shot, your three, three wood, long mm-hmm. iron, mid iron, short iron, and your short game, all the short game categories, which is short game is bunker pitch chip, putts off the green is a category. And so that mm-hmm. way your coach can then take a look at your performance on the golf course and then better subscribe a program that's going to go towards the performance right at the bottom line. So an example like this, the, this lesson that we're going to have tomorrow, because we want to develop club head speed because that's the rage mm-hmm. that far now. We say, you know what? Right. I see you, Ted, you're, you're around this past, the past few weeks. You're really losing a lot of shots around the green because you're not assessing the green properly. We got to work on that. Right. So, I hope that makes a little sense. No, that makes perfect sense. And and as a coach, you want to uh, be able to eliminate a lot of the guesswork. So this is really what this is doing for a coach. Uh, and, and obviously, if, if somebody's working with a coach or a teacher professional, you definitely want to have them on your list and share that information because that's invaluable uh, data for, for us to have to be able to look at our players and say, okay, here's what they're doing. Here's where the areas that uh, they're showing uh, weakness and so right. forth. And you know, because otherwise they're just coming to the next session and, you know, you're, you're going through that process verbally and trying to, uh, you know, get an assessment. So this way it helps me as a coach to be able to prepare ahead of time if they've played last right. weekend and they're not coming to see me until next week, getting that information in real time, I'm able to look sure. at that and, and assess what needs to be focused on so when they come to the next session – I can say, okay, here's what we need to get down to business on. Um, so, no, I think it's well, fantastic, and, and I like the simplicity of how it works. Go and, ahead, sorry. When we commercially launch, what we're, we anticipate we're, we're going to be able – this is going to be a revenue generator for a lot of coaches. First of all, they're going to be able to expand. Like, we don't want them to stop their, 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 their principles of teaching, their, their version of the golf swing. Sure. But they need to also adapt into kind of this importance of mental fitness to their, their, their students. Uh, and and yep. golf is a perfect metaphor for life. We all know that, but it also allows mm-hmm. the coach to see their perf- key performance on their, on the golf course where their shots are, are being lost. 
but more importantly, to expand into this mental fitness aspect of performance and, and trying to get their students, because the real kind of inflection point where you get into the zone is, is conditioning mm-hmm. a person's swing. Say you're, you've gone through some swing changes, is getting them to a point where they don't, they, they're, they're, they're letting it go, that whole kind of um, you have to give up control in order to gain control that the great George Newton always said. So you're out there yep. executing shots on the golf course, not playing golf swing. And then once you're able to let go of your execution, just let it go and, and not try and, and, and be bound up by mechanics. And when, mm-hmm. plus when you get to that mindset where you learn to detach emotionally, this is where the zone is. And Ted, this is where that inflection point of performance really makes a difference. And that's when people go low. And that's what happened to me in, on that Sunday when I didn't know I shot 30. My caddy said, you know, do you know what you shot? And I went, no. And, and, and yeah. that's kind of the, the <laughs> mental aspect that we're, we're, we want to, you know, you can't get into that, that, that state of mind all the time, but you want to be able to access it a lot more often than, and you got to stop this, this, this mind chatter. You know, one of the biggest problems yeah. in, in, in golf is, you know, when golfers are left to their own device, you know, without any guidance, <clears throat> you know, they, they absolutely routinely cultivate a harmful interpersonal perspective. Yeah. They talk bad to yeah. themselves. You, golfers talk, the language they use to themselves in their own interpersonal dialogue, you would never speak to anyone like that or else you might get no. shot. So, well, and, and the that, other thing, too, that, yeah, the other thing, ahead. sorry, go ahead. No, finish your thought. So it, it's important because, you know, people's, you know, they, they, they have poor to outrageous self-dialogue. You've got to stop that. And you, you've got to get to a yeah. point where your ego is out of the game because your ego is just constantly, you know, looking for, you know, uh, results, expectations. They're concerned with what other people think. And you've just got to stop that in order to access the present moment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, I always equate um, with some players that, you know, we work with and that um, to taking a trip uh, and going to the airport. They're bringing their baggage with them. And I see a lot of guys right. coming to the first, you know, to the first tee or to the, to the practice tee, whatever the case is for a lesson. And they're, they're literally pulling every baggage. So every bad <clears> round they've had for the last, you know, uh, few months or uh, even last, uh, you know, practice session that didn't go the way they wanted to go they're thinking about that all the time and they're never moving past it so you're exactly right i mean the self-talk the self-dialogue is is so damaging in golf and it's probably one of the worst uh games uh where people do that most other games it's so you know it's a quick reaction that sort of thing and you you don't have time to think but golf you get these guys standing over the golf ball for three minutes right Right, and, and, and it's so important, and, and we're working, talking to the PGA of America to, to bring this type of, of um, aspect to the long-term player development because this is really where the mental health aspect of it is. And, and today, <clears throat> all we got to do is, you know, look at what's going on with uh, Simone Biles, uh, 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 Matthew mm-hmm. Wolf, yep. Naomi Osaka. Cameron Champ has just made mm-hmm. some remarkable changes of what he's doing. Now, and take a look at Patrick Cantley. And now I'm giving examples of people that are struggling with their thoughts and anxieties yeah. and those who have mastered them. Patrick Cantley 
what he's been doing in the past couple of weeks, being a, going up against, you know, DeChambeau and John Rahm the last two right. weeks, in the manner in which he's doing it with his game is just mm-hmm. exceptional. So he is just as good as Tiger Woods in his prime and Jack Nicklaus. Now, he, what he's doing and not getting too excited, his m- emotional maturity. So we, <clears throat> as instructors and coaches, this is what we must instill into these kids and get them to mm. a point where their their personal identity is not wrapped up in their game. Because if these golfers think they're better people when they play well and lesser have less value when they play poorly, they are mistaken. And, right. and we as the coaches yep. have to get on top of these younger people's minds when they're in their formative years. And so they can mature yep. into not only good golfers, but better people in life. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's, a, it's amazing how many young players, um, you know, a year or two out on tour when things aren't going the way that they, you know, would expect or hope that they would go, right. how many of them just want to walk away from the game. And it's because, again, it's what's going on, the dialogue that's going on in their head. It's not that their game is, isn't solid. It's not that they can't hit the ball. They would have never made it there to begin with if they didn't have a good solid game. But mentally, they just are not able to hold it together. And that's the difference between somebody like a Tiger right. Woods and some of the other players out there that have just as good a, a ball-striking ability as he did, but they just didn't right. have the same mental strength or a Jack Nicklaus. And, and th- you're right. That's what has to be worked on. They have to be able to have that self-talk. But um, I hate to say this, but we've got we to gotta wrap up. And I've been enjoying the conversation. And uh, as always, it's, uh, it's interesting, and I appreciate your your insight into uh, life on tour and, and some of the stories that you shared earlier. And I'm definitely going to have you back if you'll uh, come back and uh, we can talk some more. But uh, Richard, as always, thank you very, very much for spending some time with me. And, and for the folks that uh, want to learn more about MindTrack Golf, go to MindTrackGolf.com. All of the information that, uh, that Dick was talking about tonight is on their uh, website. And you can actually click on the link there to the Apple Store and you can uh, download uh, the app for free uh, presently and, uh, and uh, you know, learn a little bit more about uh, MindTrack Golf. But, Richard, thank you very, very much. I appreciate you coming on and, and uh, sharing some insight with my audience. Well, Ted, it's always a pleasure. We, uh, you know, an hour goes by so quickly, and uh, I'd be happy to be on your show any time you want. Well, I'm glad to have you back, and I'm going to hold you to that. I'm going to get you back on here. We've got lots of things. Uh, I, I wanted to get to some Mo Norman stories, uh, but we'll have to get that another time. I'm sure you have a few. I've got a couple myself, but um, we'll have to <laughs> yeah. save that for another time. But, uh, but uh, again, Richard, thank you very much for, for spending tonight on Golf Talk Live. It's a pleasure, as always, and much continued success. Uh, uh, keep us updated on MindTrack. Let us know how everything's going, and I'll have you back on again real soon. Thank you, Ted. All right. Have a good night. Good night. All right. That was uh, my very special guest, uh, Richard Zokel, founder and developer of MindTrack Golf. Uh, again, you can go to MindTrackGolf.com, get all of the information there, and you can download the app for free uh, at the Apple Store. Uh, there's the link right there on the website, uh, and you can uh, go there and check it out for yourself. I strongly recommend that you do that. Uh, also want to thank, again, John Hughes and Pete Buchanan for joining me a little bit earlier on this evening on Coach's Corner. Thanks, guys, for always uh, bringing your best, and I look forward to seeing you guys next time. Have a great uh, weekend, everybody, and again, our hearts and thoughts and prayers go out to all of those families that were affected by September 11th, of course. Uh, The memorial, again, the 20-year memorial will be this Saturday, 
and uh, there'll be, I'm sure, lots of coverage on that. But again, our hot, uh, hearts and thoughts and prayers uh, go out to all of those families that uh, were directly impacted, and obviously all of the folks here in the U.S. that have uh, forever been had their lives changed as a result of those events. So again, we're keeping you in our thoughts and prayers. God bless everybody. I'll see you next week right here on Golf Talk Live. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.